Uh, my name is Deanna. I'm delighted to be here today with you all. Um, I'm going to be reading from Luke 11, starting in verse 37 and going through 12.3. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you? For you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they're stepping on. Teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. Yeah, said Jesus, what sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you, for you build mo monuments for the prophets you owe your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious laws and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. This is the word of the Lord. There's a popular modern misconception of Jesus that he was nice to everyone. We kind of think today and we talk about Jesus this way that kind of regardless of what people were doing, the way they were treating one another, that he kind of embraced, was tolerant of, was maybe even supportive of every kind of thing imaginable. And I think it's important to differentiate between the fact that Jesus treated everyone with love because Jesus is love but he certainly was not nice in the sentimental way that we often mean niceness. In fact, in what Deanna just read, you can see that Jesus was downright confrontational. 
And I want to, with this particular Jesus encounter that we're going through this morning, point out kind of the cast of characters. So we get a little bit of the lay of the land as we go back into this text and kind of pull it apart and see how it's relevant for us. So the first group of people that are mentioned in this text is a group called the Pharisees. And if you back up a number of generations before Jesus, Jewish culture is kind of sliding into compromise as the Greek culture is essentially taking over the world, uh, permeating everything with paganism and secularism. And this group of Jewish leaders were basically like, and I think well-intentioned, we're saying we're, we're losing our religious distinctives. We're losing our morals and our ethics. We don't look like God, and we don't look like what God calls us to look like. And so this group that called themselves the Hasidim, or the pious ones, kind of not reinvented the Torah, but they reinvigorated their love for the Torah, the first five books of Moses, the law of God. And they said, let's be faithful. Let's, let's work really, really hard to be faithful to the law of God. And later this group took on the name Pharisees or Parashim, which means separated ones. Because as the generations went on, not only did they have loyalty to the law of God itself, but they became more and more loyal to an ever-growing list of interpretations and applications of God's law, which they equally enforced on themselves and other people, saying, you've got to do all of this stuff. And by the time of Jesus, there are hundreds and hundreds of legalistic rules of the Pharisees that governed almost every imaginable aspect of life. So that's the first group. The, the second group that's introduced is there's a man called a lawyer who's like, Jesus, you're offending us. And a lawyer today is a legal expert, but the law in lawyer back then was the law of God. So this was actually like basically an Old Testament scholar is who this second group of people is. Okay, so you've got religious professionals, basically. And if it seems like these would be the last imaginable people that Jesus would throw down with, because it's like they're, they're holy and they're committed in a sense to the law of God and they're, they're scholars. They know the law and they teach others the law and they're pious. And you're like, wait, isn't that who Jesus gravitated toward and surrounded himself with is like pious, holy, good people who knew him and knew the law? And the answer is no. No, Jesus did not surround himself with people who thought they were righteous apart from the righteousness of God. And no, living a self-righteous moral or moralistic life is not the path to eternal life. That's not what Jesus calls us to. And what we see here in the heart of the text and the, the title, the message kind of captures this. I say Jesus encounters externalism because there's this glaring weakness, this glaring sin that Jesus is confronting in the Pharisees and the lawyers. And it's this sin of Externalism. Just one online dictionary had this very simple definition. Externalism is an excessive regard for outward form in religion. I think this is an incredibly important topic to talk about in church because most of you, you want to know God. You want to live moral, ethical lives. You want to be good people. And the, the question that pops in my head is, is it possible that people who want to know God and live good, clean, moral, ethical lives could maybe even accidentally slip into this sin of focus on externals rather than a focus on the heart? 
because I find my own heart going there. And I think it's something that's common to many of us. I think it's also an incredibly important topic for society in general, because have you noticed how legalistic our secular culture is? Like the modern self has a very different set of morals or ethics than the Bible. But have you noticed how new rules are forced on everyone? You need to agree to certain things. You need to tolerate certain things. You need to endorse certain things. You need to cancel certain things. And is it possible that even people who would say, like, I have no interest in God, I have no interest in Jesus, I have no interest in the Bible, are still in many ways externalists because they want to look good and they want you to look like them on the outside. And do they really care about what's going on in your heart? Not really, so long as you're checking the right boxes and agreeing to the right set of ethics. And so my point is whether you come this morning and you would think of yourself as a very religious person or you would say, I'm a very irreligious person, I'm very secular, I just don't care that much. The reality is our hearts probably bend toward externalism. And what Luke shows us here this morning is, I think, three things. Number one, Jesus diagnoses externalism. Number two, Jesus denounces externalism. And number three, Jesus delivers from externalism. So if you find yourself here in this list of things that we're going to unpack, there is hope for you and for me. Okay, so let's go. Jesus diagnoses externalism, number one. And uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to show you nine things. And I'm not going to take long on any one of these, but I want to show you nine things that will help you understand from Jesus' perspective what externalism looks like. So it's, it's one problem, but all these different manifestations of that one problem is basically the idea here. What I'm going to do in each case is I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you in the text what Jesus said. Then I'm going to give you kind of a general diagnostic principle that hopefully you're, you're going to your own life first and saying, Lord, am, am I guilty of that? Not do I know other people who are that way? Because you will know other people who are that way. Okay, I'll just tell you. Now, This whole encounter, you notice, it gets going because a Pharisee invites Jesus to his home and says, Master, will you come? Rabbi, teacher, will you come share a meal in my house? And right out of the gate, he's offending the Pharisee because Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Now, as a germaphobe, I can relate. Okay, my kids, I remember this like just being at Disneyland not that long ago. And my kids, the, the two little boys, they literally, they, they have to run their hands. It's, I mean, it's weird because I, I just stand in a line. But, but, but they have to like touch absolutely everything and just like feel every surface. And you're like, there's the gum under there. And they're just like, what is this? And then, and then they go straight from there to like eating their French fries and sticking the you know, the fries in their mouth and like licking the salt off their fingers. And I'm just, I'm dying inside, right? Okay, so, so we would think like, oh, it makes sense that you would care about hygiene. But, but as Deanna read, this wasn't about hygiene. This was about a ceremonial religious ritual. Like they, they really weren't getting that much junk. They certainly were not killing germs with just water by itself. It, they didn't have antibacterial soap, okay? So it, it's really about a ritual of, and the idea is, as you're going through life, it's possible that you touch something that a sinner touched, and you're defiled because you, you've come in contact with something that a sinner touched. And you notice Jesus' response to this as he knows these people are sitting back, and they're like, oh no, this guy doesn't even care about ceremonial cleanliness, So verse 39, Jesus says, you 
cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but on the inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. What he's saying, your, your hearts, and he uses two really strong Greek words here. He's like, you are filled with an insatiable desire for violent gain. Greed. You never have enough. And this other word, which is a word that reflects on sin, but the specific angle of sin that it's looking at is like a maliciousness or a harm that is done to other people. And he's like, you guys are so greedy and so carelessly harming other people to get what you want, but at least you clean the surface of your cups. You know, and I don't know if you've ever done this. Like I remember from my childhood one time we were camping or hiking, picnicking with our family and there's just this one picnic table left. And we go over there and it's in this forest under all these trees. And there's just bird droppings like all over the picnic table. And as a kid, I'm like, I'm not doing this. And, you know, and my mom's just setting stuff down and starting to unpack the cooler. And, you know, and I'm like, how are you doing this? And it's like, well, well the, I mean, you're not going to lick the outside of the cup. So it doesn't as gross as that seems, it doesn't really matter. And, and I don't mean to be gross, but this is kind of what Jesus is saying is like, would you rather have the bird droppings outside the cup or would you rather have them inside the cup? Okay. And, and of course, you'd rather have them outside because you're not, you may touch that with your hand to take a drink or to eat something, but you're not consuming it. And his picture here is you have something disgusting, that disgusting in you But all you care about is that it's not out here. And here's your general principle number one. You focus on looking good rather than being good. And I wonder if anyone can relate to that simple principle that you spend time and energy. You're focused on how do other people perceive me? Do I look good? Do I look moral? Do I look clean? And and like I have the right kind of ideas to other people versus do I spend time and energy making sure that I am a good person walking with God? That's the idea. Do you want to appear good and right or do you want to be good and right? And where are you putting the emphasis of your life? So that's the first principle. Now going on here, verse 42, Jesus continues. He says, now, now, he's, just, now he's just off and running, okay? The one thing like sets Jesus off, you're externalists. Now he says, verse 42, Woe to you, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. And your general principle number two, and this is again, we're diagnosing what it looks like to be an externalist. Number two, you obsess over specific but trivial performance. Okay, so imagine literally getting out the old timey scales and it's like, I have 70 grams of Thai basil. So you start trimming and making sure that you give seven grams to God in your sacrifice. So, you know, and that's, that's all well and good. It's very specific. It's very measurable. You can prove, see, I did the thing that I was supposed to do. I did it exactly so. But in the end, what have you really given God? Seven grams of basil, okay? And again, Jesus doesn't say, so stop doing that. He says, like, sure, keep tithing. You ought to do that. But, but doing justice and actually loving God and loving other people, that's what it's about. And by the way, you know that doing justice and loving God and loving others is way harder than tithing on your herbs. Why? Because it's, it's massive. 
It's all-encompassing. It's complex. You're walking into all these different situations with all these different people, and you have to figure out what does it look like to love this person in these circumstances right now. And you've got to think, and you've got to pray, and you've got to trust God that you're being loving and that you're doing justice. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders are like, oh, I'd rather have something very specific, something very measurable, something that's buttoned up, okay? But in the end, it's very trivial. And this is like the, the, the father, like getting his family ready for church. And it's like, we cannot be one second late to church. And so everyone in the car on the way to church experiences like the father's impatience and wrath. And everybody else like just comes into church and they're still shaking from like those moments in the car. And it's like, but we got there on time. And it's like, okay, you did something specific and trivial and you performed it and, and good for you. You walked in the door at 9.59.59, but is your heart far from God? You, you, you missed the big thing, right? Now verse 43 going on. Another woe, woe to you, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And the general principle here is simply you demand respect. And what's interesting here is the focus of the religious leaders was not on being respectable, but on being respected. Like, you will respect me. And the idea is there, there are certain seats in these ancient cultures. You go to these different feasts and it's like, ooh, that, that seat, we know that announces the status of the person who sits on that end of the table. And that was super important to them. Like, I'm not going to sit down here. I'm not going to recline with all of you. I'm going to be here, you know, perhaps at the head of the table or, or the seat in the marketplace or in the synagogue and kind of announce, see, I'm, I'm closer to the rabbi who's giving the talk this morning. So that announces to others that I am to be respected. And these greetings in the marketplace, this is like an ancient version of a quid pro quo, where it'd be like, you'd see one of your religious leader buddies across the way, and you shout over to him, and it's like, greetings, Rabbi Reverend of the Holy Family of such and so, and then he would say the same, oh, greetings, Father and Rabbi so and so. And what you're do doing is in, in front of everybody else, you're just like, we, we want to make sure that the, the plebeians don't miss our importance. So we're announcing it across the marketplace of like, greetings, greetings, aren't we important? And, and Jesus is pointing out this incredible thing that you folks have no interest in building the kind of faith and character that is respectable, that is honorable. You just want honor. You just demand honor. I know like... Um, if I'm talking to a number of different ones of you, some of you have followed the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, um, about in Seattle, Mark Driscoll and all that. And it's, you, you hear this over and over again of like this toxic culture of demanding, like you will respect me. And even like yelling at people and berating people of like, you will respect me. I am the pastor of this. Look at what God is doing through me to bless so many of you. And I think it's a chronic problem of pastors of like, you will respect me. But what about in a marriage where instead of seeking to be respectable and honorable, you, you just demand respect and you're mad when you don't get the affirmation, the respect that you think that you deserve or in a career where you demand respect. That's the principle here is that your focus is not respectability, but you will honor me. 
Now verse 44, Jesus continues, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And the principle here is you deliberately conceal rottenness. Now, this is going back to the ceremonial clean, cleanliness thing, but if a Jew in those days came near a dead body, let alone touched it even by accident, they would become ceremonially unclean for a period of time, and they're basically like outside the worshiping community until they can perform all these rites and rituals to get back in, okay? And, and what Jesus is saying is, like, not that you're literally concealing graves, but he says there are things in your heart that are like those graves, they are, they are cancerous and they are rotten and putrid and corrupt and corrosive, things that are defiling and harming other people. So he's talking about stuff like bitterness and resentment and jealousy and envy and greed and gossip and slander and contempt for other people. And he's saying you, you hide it. And other people come in contact with the rottenness of your life and it gets all over them. And you're defiling whole families and whole synagogues and whole towns and cultures because of the junk that you're hiding. So, you know, we're in this period of time still where COVID-19 is a thing. And uh, obviously COVID is invisible to most of us. I guess if you were a scientist and you put it under a microscope, there are certain things that you could recognize. For most of us, we would say for all intents and purposes, it's invisible, Right. So we probably come in contact to it, with it here, here and there. Um, I would much prefer that, that COVID-19 was like the hot pink stuff, you know? And we could go through culture being like, don't, don't touch the hot pink stuff. And you're like, oh, there's some over there. And there's some over there. And it'd be easy to separate yourselves from. Well, it's kind of like the Pharisees have this hot pink stuff and they deliberately suppress it and they deliberately hide it, knowing full well that they have COVID, you know, and they're giving it to other people and they're spreading this corrosion into the lives of other people, this rottenness into the lives of other people, but they hide it because they want to keep up appearances and they don't care that they're harming other people so long as they're able to keep up appearances. That's the principle, okay? Um, going on, verse 46 now, Jesus says, woe to you also. Um, and I, I love this where it's like, this is where the lawyer is like, uh, so Jesus you're saying some things that are offensive to people like me. And he's like, great. Woe to you also, verse 46, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And the principle here, again, we're still diagnosing externalism. The principle is you control others with burdensome demands. Okay, I gave you a little bit of the history of the Pharisees. Maybe they started out well, but by the time of Jesus... The, the literally hundreds and hundreds of rules were not, get this, they were not about promoting human flourishing. They were about controlling people. They were about running other people's lives and having the power for themselves. And they would go around to other people and be like, oh, you're not smart enough. You're not good enough to like be making the rules for yourselves. That's why God has blessed you with, you know, people like me, to put rules in your life. So the information flow between like just people and God supposedly passed through these men, these religious leaders. And they loved that sense of power, that sense of control. This gives us over other people's lives. And we ourselves don't keep all the rules, 
but we make sure that other people do and we punish them and we shame them when they don't. And I want us to just think about our own expectations for others. We may not have literally like rules like they did or laws that we're writing out saying like, these are my rules for you, but you have expectations, which is a way of having rules for other people. And are your expectations for the people in your orbit and all these different relationships that you have, are those expectations that promote their flourishing and their growing in strength and wisdom and grace? Or are they things that are just like, you feel pretty good because you're like, I got my kids doing this stuff, you know, and it's total nonsense. Or my spouse, these friends, coworkers have to jump through my hoops and it's really just crushing them. And Jesus is like, you won't, even, you won't even lift with a finger some of this burden. And I, like, I, I kind of picture there, if you've ever like lifted weights, like done bench presses and you have a spotter, sometimes the spotter who's helping you in case like, it's like do that one last rep that you can't really do and you let it back down on your chest and you're like, I can't get it. And sometimes even just like a couple fingers on that bar, just barely lifting is enough. He's like, you won't even do that. You're sitting there with the bar on their chest and you're like, all right, bye, I'm walking away now. See ya, good luck with that situation. And that's what they're doing spiritually, religiously to control people. Verse 47 going on, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. And the picture here is like, there are literal tombs and memorials and they're sitting here knowing full well, like our ancestors literally murdered these mouthpieces of God um, but we're going to fix up the memorials and be like, mm, see, our, see our reverence for these men and women who were prophets. And the general principle here is you virtue signal allegiance to God's word. That's what they're doing. They're virtue signaling allegiance. Like, oh, we, we love the word of God. Which is why when these men came from God and said, thus saith the Lord, and our ancestors killed them, well, too bad for our ancestors, but, but we love the word of God. And we venerate these people who brought us the word of God. And Jesus is like, it's a complete sham. How do we know it's a complete sham? Because Jesus is the greatest prophet. Like he is literally the living word of God. And they are plotting in this same chapter, like how do we, how do we get rid of him? How do we kill him? So Jesus knows, like, you don't literally have this kind of allegiance and love for the law of God. You're just, you're virtue signaling to culture around you. Like, look how much we love God. And uh, I always remember this story that my daughter was at a coffee shop hanging out, doing homework or reading a book or something one time. And uh, she's like, Dad, it was, it was hilarious. This, this pastor that you know came in and was like talking loudly and badly on his phone like just for a very long time, like just talk, 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 like gossip, gossip, gossip. Like then, then he's, he's finally done and he like gets his book bag and he gets out his laptop and opens it up and gets out his Bible and poses it just so in his cup of coffee. Um, I, maybe I should get a refill and get the little design on the top. And then like takes a picture and Instagrams it and is like, all morning in the word, you know, just like so excited to share on Sunday with church. And she was like, I'm going to have a really hard time now when I, you know, when I see this person, like virtue signaling allegiance to God's word. Because God would just be like, um, I'm not worried about your Instagram photo about your allegiance to God. Like I'm worried about the conversations that you just had on the phone. Right? So 
I think this is something for all of us that, that we don't have to like put out the vibe that we love the word of God. Just love the word of God. Just treasure the word of God. You don't have to tell people that you treasure the word of God. Just treasure the word of God and they will know by interacting with your life, there's someone who loves the word. There's someone who hungers and thirsts for the word. Now, verse 52, woe to you, Jesus goes on, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. The general principle here is you missed the whole point of the law. You missed the entire point. You are the religious experts. You are the legal religious scholars. You read the law and you're like, okay, cool, we can do that. And Jesus is like, you missed the point. You missed the point. If you think that you can do this list of rules and the Messiah will be so pleased with you, he'll finally come because you've gotten it good enough. You've missed the whole point of the law. Okay, so here's what they're missing, the, kind of the key. So the law, the law of God, and I mean, still today, you can read the law of God and, and massively benefit from the law of God because the law does two things. One, it shows you the heart and character of your God, of our God. Because as he's giving you principles to live by and he's saying, don't do these kinds of things, do these other kinds of things, you start to hear like, oh, my God is a God of impartiality. My God is a God of truth. My God is a God of justice. My God is a God of mercy. My God is a God of unconditional love and so on. So you're learning about God through the things that he says are important. But secondly, the law also, the New Testament tells us like, it's like a mirror, that God's holding a mirror up to your life. And as you look into the law, you should be like, not, oh, cool, I got that. You should be like, oh, I fall short. Like, I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. As we confessed together this morning, we sin in thought, word, and deed by the things that we do and by the things that we leave undone. And part of the benefit of the law of God is it holds up this mirror. Why? To condemn us? No, not if you're a follower of Jesus, not to condemn you. It's so you realize I can't do all that God requires. God, help me. And he does, and it's something called grace. He does help you. He does forgive you. So if your takeaway from the law, like the Pharisees, is either this self-righteous pride of like, I got that, or this crushing defeat of guilt and shame, like I am just a horrible person. I don't know how everyone else here does this, but I'm like spiritual pond scum. I am really bad. And that's all you ever land on rather than letting that shame and that guilt drive you back to the forgiveness of Jesus. Then you still haven't discovered the key that opens the door to life. The key is like, yes. And, and, and my wife's Volvo does this more. And like, you know, when I'm driving it for the, the whole family to go up to the mountains or whatever, her Volvo is the law because it has all these, like, I don't even know how it does this, but it has cameras that are like reading the road as you drive. And then when you exceed the speed limit by a certain amount, like it starts like flashing at you on the dashboard. And I'm like, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life, <laughs> right? But, but and, and some of you have that view of like the law of God is like, all it is is that like warning, 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 you're bad, you're terrible, you're a sinner. And that's not the total picture. 
Like God's law is not just like the warning stuff on the Volvo that's like, you don't have your seatbelt on so that we got the sound going off and you're going too fast. And so we got this thing happening and then all these other alarms and different. And, and, and then you're just ashamed because the whole car can hear and see these things happening to expose your sin and your guilt and your shame. We're missing the whole point. And what I'm saying is the Pharisees used the law of God like a Volvo. And they're like, bad person, bad person, warning, avoid this person. Do you, everybody see this person? We are not like this person, you know? Oh, you are. And not only are you missing the point, but you're closing the door to other people to discover the grace of God, even through the law of God, which would be an incredible thing, okay? All right, we're almost two, two more of these, and then let's uh, go to what we do with this, okay? Um, so going on here, verses 53 and 54, the Pharisees began to press him hard, and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So here's the principle. You know you're an externalist if you hate and look to silence truth tellers. And this is an incredible irony that the, the people who call themselves like the holy ones are trying to provoke someone to sin. Incredible. But it's, they're so blinded by ambition and reputation they hate and they're looking to murder the Messiah. And we see it again, like I referenced the rise and fall of Mars Hill, but it, this, this is more endemic to churches and religious culture than maybe some of you know. But it's like, why do churches cover up patterns of bullying and anger and gossip and slander and divisiveness while actively trying to find fault in whistleblowers, just people who are like, hey, there's a problem here. Like we, we should want that in church. And I don't mean like someone who's like taking your sin and going over here and exposing it to these other people. I just mean people who are like, hey, there's a problem that we don't want to cover up. We want to grow in Christ. We want to live holy lives that are pleasing to him. But like the Pharisees, still, because so often the heart is like, I don't care so much about being good. I want to look good, and I want people to enhance my reputation, and I want the church to grow because people respect me. So you have the same thing today, where truth-tellers are silenced and shunned, and you, you have whole groups, whole churches, whole, I don't know if you have whole denominations, but groups of churches that are kind of like, let's together, like, push out those who are blowing the whistle on some of the problems here, okay? Uh, now chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, beware. So now, now he's shifted a little bit. He's, he's leaving. He's tired of like, woe on you, woe on you, woe on you, woe on you. Um, he shifts, and it says like thousands of people are coming to him. So these are just common people, okay? And he's telling them now, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So this final diagnostic of an externalist is you poison everything with pretense and double talk. And I say poison because that's the idea. When he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, he's talking about yeast. You know, and yeast is, again, like, I, I guess you can see it. You know, it's, big, it's, bigger, than, uh, it's bigger than COVID. But the, the way it works that you get the right ingredients together and it just starts multiplying, multiplying, multiplying and you're, like, you're proofing your bread and you're punching it down and it's just going nuts and like 
it's growing. It's, it's multiplying exponentially. And he's like, that's what happens with hypocrisy, pretense, double talk. Is that you get yourself in a culture of people who say one thing and do another, or they pretend to be someone or something around this group of people. And then the reality is the rest of their life is telling a different story. Or they have one set of rules for them, but then one set of rules for us. And that kind of culture, Jesus is saying, is toxic. It poisons everything. And he's saying, watch out for it. And I love this. He goes on, the, the last thing here that we read is, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And his point is, there's double talk. Your, your private message does not match your public message. And there's a day coming, he's warning them, there's a day coming, I'm going to expose what you whispered in the dark. I'm going to expose the fact that you, you, you said you collaborated for this evil to suppress my people and to bar the way to God and to grace in their lives. I'm going to expose it and be done with it. And that kind of leads us to the second point, which will take like 30 seconds. So I just want you to know, if you didn't catch it already with what we just went through, point two, Jesus denounces, which is like publicly decrying externalism. You know, he says, woe to you six times, which is a word that means like doom, but also like horror. And it could be either one of those, or it could be a combination of those, like almost like doom on you. If you continue in this path of behaviors, there is doom, there is punishment, there is judgment coming on these kinds of behaviors. But it's also like a horror, like you could still turn. Like if you discovered something in your life that you're like, that's a horror, like I want to get this out of the house before this black mold gets everywhere, like you could do that. But, but that's this word woe that Jesus says six times and he calls them fools, which is literally like, it's a compound word. Like you have no understanding, no reason at all. And every single statement about them is negative. And he concludes by saying everyone else beware, which is like be on guard, look out for these kinds of people. So he denounces it. But then as I went through this, if you were like, man, I do that, I do that. Those nine things, and we're going to do this in our gospel communities this week, just go through those nine things or go through two of those nine things and just be like, big general principle, am I more concerned with looking good than actually being good? Maybe you'd say, I find myself there sometimes. So this last point is for you. Jesus delivers from externalism. And I want us to note, like Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. Okay, he doesn't say that in this text, but he says that. Jesus didn't just come to seek like the rebellious lost. He also came to save the religious lost. You know, the parable of the prodigal son, the father wasn't just there for the prodigal who ran away. He was there for the self-righteous son who stayed home. And it was like, what about me? And he's like, yeah, everything I have is yours. Like, I've given you grace. I've adopted you. You know, you're my son. So Jesus shows us three things here. If you want to be delivered from externalism, here's what you do. Receive his presence, give him your heart, and do what he did. Okay, receive his presence, give him your heart, and do what he did. Verse 27, don't just gloss over this. As corrupt as these externalists were, and as much as Jesus knew, you are plotting literally to kill me right now. 
Nevertheless, he went to them and he ate with them, which in that culture, let alone our culture, was a sign of I'm willing to be with you. I'm willing to fellowship with you. Now, they wouldn't actually receive him, but that's the first point. You and I can receive his presence and say, Jesus, I want to be with you. And I want a a, a situation in my heart, in my life that is welcoming to you. So receive his presence. Now verse 41, give him your heart. Give him your heart. So Jesus says, give as alms those things that are within. This is an interesting phrase because what is giving alms? It's like when they're in the synagogue or they're on the way to marketplace and they see the poor in that culture, like the giving of alms to the poor is like, hey, here's a few coins. And I would suggest to you that it was not hard for the religious Pharisees and the lawyers to give a few coins because these were relatively wealthy people in that culture. So it did not pain them. It did not feel like sacrifice to them to give a few coins. And by the way, what are they actually doing when they give a few coins? Was it like, oh, I see your desperate need and I care about you and here's a few coins because I have a heart of love and generosity and compassion. No, for the Pharisees, it's like, you know, Jesus is like, you, you sound trumpets, which is, which is probably exaggeration rather than liberal. I don't picture them like carrying around trumpets and being like, I'm about to give something away and I whip it out, you know? But I, I think the idea is like you, you can't give away to the poor without like letting everyone know. This is a big deal. Look how sacrificial I am. So what the Pharisees were doing by giving alms to the poor is they were really just enhancing their own reputations. Like, look at me. Look how awesome I am. Giving alms was easy, but it was simply another manifestation of their externalism. So Jesus says, give as alms those things that are within. And what he's saying is, instead of giving a few pennies, which is not hard for you, do something hard. Give God your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Like, stop using God-sounding things to enhance your own reputation Surrender your reputation, surrender your entire person to God as a living sacrifice. And here's what Jesus is really saying. When when I'm saying like, give God your heart, see the Pharisees and people like them still today, their whole idea of how to live life and how to be transformed, how to be a good person, it's, it's an outside in kind of lifestyle. What I mean is it's, it's all superficial. All the rules are like, they're on the outside. And it's like, if I do this and I touch this and I don't touch that and I don't do that and I go these places, but not those places and I associate with these people, but not those people. And I'm doing all these things the right way. So see God, see my heart, see, aren't I a good person? And Jesus is like, it doesn't work that way. And what Jesus is suggesting here is like all real living, all real transformation is inside out living. Like if you give God, your heart, and say, Lord, here are my desires, here are my affections, here are my fears, my dreams, my hopes, my plans, my ambitions. Here's what I treasure. Here's what I trust. I give you my heart. And he's like, then, then I can fix all the outside stuff as, as fruit that's growing out of your transformed heart. So really what he's inviting, as, as horrible as these people were, and they were horrible, I want you to notice Jesus is with them and he's inviting them, give me your heart. Like I can deliver you too. I can love you too. I can rescue you too if you let me. Now, 
do what he did. So receive him, give him your heart, do what he did. And this is verse 42 where Jesus, you know, the command here is like, go and practice these massive categories like love and justice. Do the hard work of applying these things to specific people in specific circumstances at specific times. And do you know what you're going to find when you try to do massive things like forgive and reconcile and do justice, love kindness, walk in love? Like you won't make it a few steps before you're like, uh, so God, I, I need help here because I'm not able to love this person right now. So can you give me more of you so that I can love this person? Or you're, you're trying to forgive because you're like, I want to do what Jesus did. And Jesus was forgiving. And so you, you start and then like, you, you just got to confess like from the heart, Jesus, I can't, like I'm hurt. I'm, I'm still hurt. Like I thought I forgave her. I thought I forgave him, but, but the pain is still there. And, and what you find is if, if and, and the order is important. It's like, Jesus is like, receive me, surrender your heart, then with my presence and from the heart, go and practice the things that you see me doing. And this is the whole path of discipleship, friends, and we will say it over and over and over again. And like, I mean, to use like practicing the way John Mark Comer language, if some of you know that, he's like, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, like in your heart, being transformed, do what he did. Be with him, be like him, do what he did. Be with him, be like him, do what he did. And you notice even in this text, Jesus is not like, hey, Pharisees, like you need to invite me into your hearts and then you can go to heaven when you die. No, he's like, you need to receive my presence. You need to be transformed in your hearts so that inside out transformation happens. So then you can do the kinds of things that you see me doing. So here's your theme, run from trying to look good Run from trying to look good. Run to the God who actually makes you good.